invite you now to turn in your scriptures to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, uh, picking up in verse 13 this morning. Our text today deals specifically with God's promise to Abraham and the fact that he desires us, the heirs of that promise, to to have assurance of it. Now, we are in, obviously, the sixth chapter of our study through the book of Hebrews, chapter by chapter, and we have spoken a lot about assurance thus far. But the reason is, is that while... On the one hand, the author of Hebrews is terribly concerned for the sake of his congregation that they wake up from their slumber, if you will, and be diligent in pursuing the Lord, clinging to the word as it has been preached to them and pursuing Christ. At the same time, he knows that part of what encourages that is the assurance that comes from the gospel. And so he presses again into that assurance this morning. Now, we have all made promises, most likely. And the reason we make promises as as men on a human level is not for our sake, it's for the sake of others, right? We make promises, generally speaking, whenever there is no tangible evidence to give or to support the truthfulness of our claims. And so to show our seriousness, we we make a promise. It's to increase somebody else's confidence in what we ourselves are saying. Unfortunately, we know that man's promises are often broken because after all, we are sinful, we are failing, and we are ever-changing creatures. But the scriptures are abundantly clear that God is not. He does not change. He does not fail. And in him there is no iniquity. And so one of the main thrusts of our text this morning is that God made his promise of blessing and salvation to Abraham, but he guaranteed it with an oath ultimately for our sake. He desires us to have assurance of his good purposes for us. And he's given us beyond that what we need. He's given us everything we need through the scriptures, through the testimony of the Holy Spirit, to walk in faith, with patience, that we might inherit those promises. And so as a summary, as we turn our eyes to chapter 6 and verse 13 is this, the people of God do well to be patient because the promises of God are guaranteed in Christ Jesus for our sake. Let's read beginning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement 
to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Dear Father, illuminate our understanding now through the testimony of this word and your Spirit's work within us. Confront us in our struggles to be anchored in hope, steadfast in faith, and, and patient in our waiting, but also renew in us a heart that clings to your promises as we behold Christ, the guarantor of all of them, and enable us to continue to engage in true worship even as we sit under the preaching of your word. For our good and for your glory we pray it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the reason that the author returns here to Abraham is to give a specific example to us um, that comes out of the previous verse, as a matter of fact, in verse 12. The command or the exhortation there was that we be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we have a ton of examples, as we'll see in chapter 11 of Hebrews, once we get there, a ton of examples of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. But the author here is now giving us a specific example, a key example of one of those individuals. And Abraham, as you might well know, is really the typical example for faith in the Old Testament. Paul refers to him a number of times, and notably in Romans chapter 4, as the example of salvation by grace through faith. Now God came to Abraham in Genesis 12, as we're told, and made the initial promise that is mentioned here. <coughs> that promise was to make of Abraham a great nation from his offspring, to bless him, and to bless all of the nations of the earth through Abraham. Now, that's a wonderful promise, but as the scriptures go on, we find that the fullness of that promise, what was ultimately being conveyed by God to Abraham, was the promise of salvation and eternal life. But Abraham, we know, did not immediately inherit those promises. In fact, if you do the math in the Genesis narrative, it took him 25 years and a most serious testing of his faith over that time before he even began to see kind of the first manifestations of the fulfillment of that promise. Nevertheless, we're also told that he died without seeing the promise fulfilled, as we might expect. But the scriptures also tell us that Abraham died in faith, knowing that he would receive the promise. Now, what that communicates to us there is that Abraham understood and knew and was trusting that the fullness of this promise that God had made to him was not a promise for this earth. Now, surely it had earthly implications. Certainly there were earthly effects. There were certain experiences in which Abraham was, we might say, confirmed or encouraged in the promise, but the ultimate fulfillment of those promises was not for this world and this life. It was an eternal eschatological promise, we might say. Again, that promise of salvation, of eternal reward. 
that even death could not prevent us from receiving. So he walked in faith with patience. Certainly he will inherit the promise. Now, what's the relevance of that? Well, the scripture tells us that the same reality is before us. That's what this passage is communicating to us. It's because the same promise to Abraham, guaranteed later with an oath, which we'll talk about, and all of Abraham's offspring for that matter, it includes us as recipients. And it gives us this sure hope that, as the text says, anchors our soul. It's a hope not rooted in worldly things or in temporary things or even in temporary comfort, but in eternal salvation in the presence of God where Jesus has gone before us. And again, I'll refer back to chapter 1, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that is the source of that encouragement, that when it tells us Jesus is a good and faithful high priest, it's because he sits at the right hand of the Father. So therefore, we do well to be patient. For God has promised, He has sworn an oath, and ultimately He has sent His Son showing that the promise of salvation is unfailing, unchanging, and guaranteed to us. Now, in the first couple of verses here, we have this introduction to the promise and to the example of Abraham. And as with everything in theology, faith, practice, life, all of it requires that we begin with God. Okay, we can't start somewhere else. We have to begin with God. He's the starting point because He's the only truly absolute thing in all of the universe. Now, since we're dependent creatures, there will always be something greater than ourselves. There's always going to be something that we can compare ourselves to, that we can relate to, that ultimately is beyond what we ourselves are. But that's not the case with God. As we read in Exodus, he is that he is. Or as he said, I am that I am. There is no other like me, says the Lord. And so when he sought to guarantee the promise, he gave an oath. But as the text tells us here, when we give an oath, people swear by something outside of themselves. But there's nothing greater than God. So in order to give that oath, he had to swear by his own name. And that is precisely what he did, he swore by himself because he alone is absolute truth. But there's a, a second angle on that as to what's going on. At the same time, the reason he sought to guarantee that promise, the reason he gave that oath is because of who he is. He is a gracious God of covenant. And he desired to give covenant love and covenant assurance to his covenant people. So our first point then is simply this. The promise is guaranteed because of who God is. He's unchanging, he's absolute, and he's a God of covenant. Now, while it might seem quite obvious, and matter of fact, we don't want to skim over this reality that God wants us to have assurance of his promises. Again, God doesn't need to make promises. God doesn't need to make known His workings to man. Anything that God reveals is, is a work of His loving kindness and mercy to mankind. But obviously here, there is a desire on God's part to give His people this encouragement. Now, why would that be? Well, it's He knows us. 
He knows our weakness. He knows our failings. He knows that we are tempted and that we are liable to stumble and fall and to be overcome by any manner of shortcomings that are within us because of sin. And so it's his desire to give us good assurance of his promises. Now we need to think about that because so often it is easy to get into our minds, especially when we are confronted with the holiness of God, which we rightly should be. We certainly should wrestle and grapple with the grandeur of who God is and at our obvious insignificance and unworthiness before this holy God. We should wrestle with that. But nevertheless, that can also, when not interpreted rightly in light of what else the Scripture has to say about the gospel, that can cause us to kind of shrink away and to live life with no amount of assurance, never having any solace for our souls. But what the author's con communicating here is that the very essence of what the gospel is, is assurance for our souls. Why? Because God has chosen to give it to us. And we need look no further than the scriptures that we have before us to find that wonderful assurance. So let's first then simply think about how we are assured of these promises because of who God is. As we said, He is absolute. What that means is there's no one higher than Him. There's no one independent of Him. There's no thing that can compete with Him or that He can look at and say, okay, yeah, here's how I know that. It's because that over there is true. No, God is truth. William Lane comments on this passage and says, The notion that God swears by himself signifies that he is bound to his word by his character. After all, if he were to go back on his promise, if he were to change in any way and say, Well, yeah, I said that then, but I've, changed, I've reconsidered and I'm going to go a different way now, then that would necessarily contradict who he is. For Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. And as we've already mentioned in Exodus 3, we see that God is, by His very nature and by His name, unchanging. Now, as a side note, I do just want to briefly mention here, because it's in the text, something about uh, lawful oaths and vows. Now, we don't get many opportunities to talk about that, preaching expositionally through the Scriptures, but... It is in our confession. We have a chapter on awful oaths and vows. And oftentimes that can be confusing because we also know that Jesus said, right, it is better not to swear at all. So we wonder, how do we reconcile Jesus saying that in Matthew 5 with the law, which says in Deuteronomy 10, 20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Was Jesus contradicting the law? Well, the basic principle of interpretation is we know the Bible doesn't contradict itself. We know Jesus certainly didn't contradict the law. So that means we have to do a little bit of digging. But I bring this out because here we have an example of God himself swearing. That is, taking a, an oath. And certainly, in God there is no sin, there is no iniquity. And so an oath in and of itself cannot be sinful. So what was it then that Jesus was talking about? Well, he was correcting irreverence in the taking of oaths 
among the Jewish people of his day. He wasn't contradicting the law, but rather what the law teaches is that to take an oath is the most high, most reverent, most solemn act that a person can engage in in invoking the name of God. And therefore, it must not be taken lightly. It is to be reserved for the most special occasions, for the most serious of uh, truth confirmations. In Jesus' day, it came to be taken quite lightly. And it even became to be divided out. That Some people would swear by heaven, some would swear by earth, some by the temple, some by God himself. And it came to have these different levels of significance. And what the law teaches is that, no, if you are to confirm by an oath, the only one that we can swear by is by God alone, for he alone is truth. And so here we have an example of that once again. As it tells us, there's no one greater by whom he may swear. And so God swore by himself. But now as it comes back to Abraham, he's held forth as that example of faith and patient endurance. And so let's look for a moment at what, where this promise is found and where the oath that is being referred to is found. Let's actually start with the oath. We read it in our scripture reading in Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17. God begins with, by myself I have sworn. That's the language of oath. And what he swore was that he would bless Abraham, multiply his offspring, and that the offspring would possess the gate of his enemies. In other words, that his offspring would go on to become a great nation and to rule. That's the promise, or rather the oath that God made there. But also, we have referenced the promise. Well, the promise actually goes back further. That's what we mentioned from Genesis chapter 12. What we need to notice, though, is that those two things came at distinct points in time. The promise in Genesis 12 came quite a number of years before the oath that we find in Genesis 20. Two, But what we see from the author taking those two scriptures and packaging them and holding them forth to us is that ultimately the content of those promises were, as we said, eschatological. They had to deal with the ultimate end of all things, how things will conclude. The reason we know that is because here we see if you skip on down to verse 17, it says, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So from that moment, even in Genesis 22, when God declared that oath to Abraham, what he had in view was the heirs of that promise to come. Now, of course, that would immediately have in view Abraham's son Isaac, and then later on, the 12 tribes of Israel. But as it's coming to us here, we see that it includes now the church. There is no contradiction. There is no separation between those two groups in terms of the promise of God, which is why we read in Galatians 3 and verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Therefore, this promise is for our good, and for our building up in the faith. And we see here 
In verse 15 it says, And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, or patiently waited, obtained the promises. Again, reflecting verse 12, which we saw last week, speaking of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. What's being implied here is that faith and patient endurance are not the cause of obtaining the promise. That's where we've got to be very careful and be very clear on what the Scriptures teach about that distinction uh, between earning something and receiving something. All right, in this case, the faith and patient endurance are what we may call the circumstances of acquiring the promise. All right, but they are not the cause of receiving that promise. The cause is God's grace. The circumstances are faith and patient endurance over time. And so what the author is giving us here then is a biblical basis for this congregation to, to follow after and emulate the faith of Abraham and his patience and to be certain with the expectation that they will receive what God had promised to them because Abraham himself ultimately will receive what God promised to him. Now the consistent point throughout the New Testament um, in this area, and especially later on in Hebrews, is that the fullness of these promises, as we've said, are not realized in this life. And, and this is a, an area where many groups have, have gone astray in, in previous times and even in our own day. But it goes back to the idea of the things in this world being but copies and shadows of the heavenly things. Right? Hebrews 8 kind of gets into that idea. But what this means then is that it changes what we expect to see in this life. And one of the, the clear and very prominent uh, contradictions to the biblical teaching here would be the prosperity gospel sort of heresy. All right, That's a form of what we may call overrealized eschatology, where we see the language of the promises made in the scriptures, and we reach the conclusion that all of the fullness of those promises should be realized in the here and now. No more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering. Everything's great. What's interesting is the reformers actually dealt with this um, in a number of different ways. But I believe it was the Second Helvetic Confession that specifically had some language in there uh, that denounced um, Jewish myths of a coming golden age. Now, what they were getting at is responding to some of the Anabaptists of that day who were basically teaching that all that we see in the Scriptures should be realized here and now. But what they were neglecting to understand is that Jesus promised a return. Jesus promised that he would return to judge the world in righteousness and in truth. And then would come the end. And then he would bring down a new heavens and a new earth. And then he would be the light for the people of God forever. And we would live with him. In short, the reward being pointed to here is an eternal one, not a temporal one. Now, I do want to say that doesn't mean that there's not serious realizations of God's promises in this life. There certainly are. Otherwise, we would never expect to see the gospel take root anywhere. We would never see to see 
people saved and souls converted and see change among people's lives. And we certainly do see that. We're promised that in the scriptures. But rather what it means is we don't expect the ultimate end of these promises to be realized by us in this life. We look for the world to come, right? The heavenly Jerusalem. As Calvin said, in this way ought glory to be given to God. We must quietly hope for what he does not yet show to our senses, but hides from us and for a long time defers in order that our patience may be exercised. Certainly this has a serious effect on the way in which we live, the way we order our lives. For us here, there's a particular relevance to the way that we raise our children. We are blessed in this church to have probably more children than we do have adults, I think. Now, what a joy, what an awesome thing that is, but also what an awesome responsibility that that is. Now, sure, we're to teach them the basic biblical virtues of honesty, hard work, truthfulness, integrity, provision for family, and so on and so forth. But all of those things are individual elements of a single unified worldview that comes to us from the Scripture. And that worldview has Christ as its foundation and ultimately as its goal. And so it's hard work, but it is our duty as Christian parents to raise our children in the Scripture so that they come to operate faithfully in this worldview. Now, why I say it's hard work is because that means we can't just take out texts here and there that give good moral teachings. Now, are there many of those? Absolutely. But we don't want to pick apart the scriptures lest we communicate to our children that there's not really a unified vision here. It's just what seems to be applicable at your moment in time. Rather, we want them to see that the scriptures lead us to a full-orbed view of who we are, who God is, and what is to come for those whom he has called to himself. Because it's that view that ultimately facilitates patient steadfast, waiting upon the Lord. And that's what we are called to. That's what we want for our children. And so we have to ask, are we communicating that to them both with our teaching and with our lives? Certainly, we can always do better. But certainly, that is our goal. And the Lord is faithful to guide us in that when we pursue Him as our end. Now, as we move along in the text, we've already jumped forward a little bit to verse 17 and then back again, but I want you now to look at verse 16, all the way down through verse 18, where he moves on after mentioning that Abraham patiently waited, obtained the promise, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Here is where we see the biblical theology being clearly communicated once again in Hebrews. Now, what we mean by biblical theology is, is essentially the development of God's plan of redemption over time as it's revealed. Right? So now if, if Abraham were only an example of a principle, 
what we mean. He, he's just over there, and he just illustrates some kind of general principle about the working of God or his kindness or something other than that. Then that means we would probably need to look elsewhere for the specific content of the promises that are being talked about here. So Abraham's an example that God is faithful, but what are the promises to us that he's going to be faithful in? But in fact, that's not the case. Rather, the author shows us that the promise made to Abraham is the same promise that we are subject to. We don't need to look elsewhere. All we need to do is look at Abraham and examine him and the promise made to him to understand what that promise is for us. Now, what's more, as we mentioned at the beginning, is that when God made that promise, he guaranteed it with an oath because he wanted us, that is, all of Abraham's offspring, to be convinced of his unchangeable purpose. He wanted to have us, us to have assurance. So the promise then is guaranteed not just to Abraham, but to all of his heirs. And here we need to go back to the two unchangeable things. I've already kind of indicated the two unchangeable things to be the promise and the oath. That is Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. But we must admit that it's not made explicitly clear in this passage. And there are two major schools of thought on this. Um, the second school of thought that we've not mentioned yet is that the, the oath being mentioned here is not the oath of Genesis 22, but rather the decrees in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Now, some expositors get to that because, as we've already seen, Psalm 110 features quite prominently in Hebrews already, and we'll go on to have a further exposition of that in chapter 7. And there we see the Lord swear that um, the Lord Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. However, what would lead us away from that interpretation is that the immediate context is focused on Abraham as the example. And the promise and the oath did not come simultaneously, but nevertheless, we do see both that promise and an oath given to him. Again, the promise in Genesis 12, that oath formula in Genesis 22. Now we might say, well, yeah, but the heirs are in view. And so the heirs were recipients of the promise in, or the oath rather, in Psalm 110, right? That was in David's day. That could be true, but nevertheless, what it seems to be communicating, because Genesis 22 is uh, quoted, it seems to be indicating that, that those two events in Abraham's life, even though they happened all these many years ago, the reality of that was for those who were to come after him. And so that's where we look to. And so thus, he was intended for his offspring to give them assurance. So in verse 18 then, we are to have strong encouragement because we are the heirs. And it's at this point that I want to make mention uh, again of the unity of the covenant. Part of what I was implying there at the beginning that if Abraham were only an example and that there were separate promises for us that we're to simply say, okay, God did it for Abraham, so let's go find our promises and know that he'll do it for us. Unfortunately, that is an approach to Scripture implemented by some. Now, the issue with that is that the Scriptures teach no such separation between the Old and New Covenants. 
That's why our confession states that it is the covenant of grace is one covenant of grace with two administrations, an old covenant administration, a new covenant administration, but this, they are the same in substance, substantially the same. Now that is why then, even though these words were written to the Hebrews of Moses' day when they were recorded about Abraham, nevertheless, they include New Testament Christians by the testimony of our author here. Because again, what is he doing? He's invoking Abraham to give us, we who have fled for refuge, to give us strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. It is one and the same hope. We all need to be aware that this is one of the major things that distinguishes uh, true Reformed theology from other streams and, and branches of, of confession. For example, we could compare to the Anabaptists that rose up during the Reformation time period. And they were one of the first groups that really sought to, to just separate the Old and New Testaments and to say that, yeah, there's examples in the Old Testament, but the gospel is different. And it, and it creates a new people of God, a different people of God. Thus, the church and the Israel and Israel are absolutely um, separable from one another. This same sort of mindset comes forth in dispensational theology today, uh, which is quite prominent, where again, they see two different peoples of God. And then you have also a lot of non-denominational sort of churches that don't really find themselves squarely in any one theological movement, and they really don't have a clear confession of how they understand the relationship between the old and new covenants. Now, I point all that out because we need to be clear of what we mean when we talk about Reformed theology. Now, I'm not one that seeks to you know, hold that title for a small group of people or anything like that, but words need to have meaning. We need to know what the definition is. And so any sort of theology that drives a wedge between the Old and New Testaments or the peoples of God um, cannot truly be called Reformed because true Reformed theology communicates that there is one people of God across both Testaments and that we, the church and the New Testament, are heirs along with Abraham, heirs according to the promise. A part of why that is so important is, as you can tell, is because really that is the one of the main arguments for the hope that we are to have as Christians. If we reject that connection to Abraham or that connection to his children that came after him, then we're going to have a really hard time receiving and understanding the encouragement that the Scripture is teach, seeking to give us. And we do not want to neglect any of the means of grace that God has reserved for us. Which moves us then to where this passage really kind of brings itself together with this final sort of assertion, and that's the guarantee of the promise, gives us perfect hope. Now, what we mean by perfect hope is not that it's perfect in experience. We're still sinners. We're still weak. And so we certainly may not have perfect assurance and hope in ourselves. 
But the point is, that which is there, that which God has extended to us, is in and of itself perfect. We need nothing more. It is fully sufficient. Now you recall when Jesus said in Matthew 7, 11, He said, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? Well, this text here communicates that fatherly love of God and His care for us. And that it is such that it gives us the firm hold of hope that our souls need and desire. As we've said, He knows us. He knows our weaknesses. And He gives us His grace to strengthen us in those weaknesses. And what's more, He has sent to us His Son, Jesus Christ, going before us, paying the debt of our sin, and thus securing what has been promised and guaranteed. And so the reality of this perfect hope is this. Picking up from verse 18, we're told to hold fast to the hope set before us. And it says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of, us, of the soul, a hope that enters into the curtain or enter the inter, inner place behind the curtain. Now, a lot of people see this text and they think of Jesus as the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now, certainly there's a sense in which that is true, even if it's just by putting together the theology of the Bible. We should have no problem with calling Jesus a sure and steady anchor. Certainly he is. But this particular text is not driving at that point, at least not in that approach. It is, textually speaking, referring to the hope itself as the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now, as we explain more on that, let's just simply recognize the metaphor for what it is. It's a, it's a sailing term, right? A nautical term, just as what's probably in your mind, picturing an anchor that's dropped from a boat that lands on the bottom of the sea floor and digs in and holds the ship from moving with the wind or with the currents, but holds it in place. In fact, where it also, where it also says there, that um, it is sure and steadfast. Those terms um, are also found in wisdom literature and in uh, even pagan Greek writings to communicate the, the sense of something that has stability and firmness uh, to such a degree that it can't be moved. And so now I know for myself, you know, we had a, a big move uh, back last year. And I'm one that when we're moving stuff on trailers, um, I don't like taking chances of it falling off or coming loose. And so the more ratchet straps, the better for me. And so I try to strap that load down as good as I can, usually even breaking some things because you strap it down too tight. But what I want is to be able to wiggle that thing and nothing moves, right? It is sure, it's steadfast, it is not coming loose. And that is exactly the imagery in mind when it says that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope. Now, it might be odd to think of it that way, though, to think of our hope being the anchor. But what it's getting at is that in the Scriptures, we see that faith and hope go together. Right? You really can't have one without the other. Now, they can come in varying degrees, subject to weakness, but nevertheless, they come together. And so that faith and hope is what connects us to Christ. 
Now, again, we know that that itself is a gift. It's a gift of God. But nevertheless, it connects us to Christ. And that is why it is pictured as the anchor. Ultimately, Christ is the one who holds us. But that faith and hope is what anchors us to him, holds us firm and secure. And the reason we have it is because God has made his promise. God has made his guarantee. Two unchangeable things because our God is unchangeable that we can look at and rest assured then and wait patiently for the fulfillment of his promises with a steadfast faith and hope tethering us to Christ. Now going back to our first point, the fact that it's rooted in who God is, if we step back from this text and take in what it's seeking to communicate to us, and we survey from our time all the way back to the beginning of history, what we find is a testimony that's undeniable, which is that God never goes back on His Word. God keeps His Word. He does what He says He will do. That gives us this wonderful assurance. But at the same time, circling back to the warning that we've already heard from the book of Hebrews, at the same time, it also gives us no excuse. As Jesus said to, or rather said in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man when he was sent to Sheol in the place of torment, he requested that Abraham send Lazarus back to the rich man's family to warn them. Right, that they would pay attention. Abraham says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to him. But the rich man goes on and says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Why not? Well, it's because the problem is not lack of evidence. It's hardness of heart. Thus, we remind ourselves of the warning we received in a few sermons ago from the text that told us, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's because we are prone to drift. We are prone to remove ourselves from the means of grace and from God's ordinary uh, provision for us. And so we're called to hear his voice, not to harden our hearts, but to run after him. And thus, this is a pastor's concern for his flock. Now, practically, the word which testifies to these promises is our starting point. And the certainty of them evokes a patient hope and faith within us. Now, we all know that this should manifest itself in our private devotions, but all the more even in our family devotions, to go back to our previous point. Because the flesh resists all trust and assurance in Christ. The flesh seeks to find any excuse not to have assurance, to look to something else that ultimately cannot provide assurance. And so we must be diligent to center our lives on that which can, that which the Scriptures point us to. We have this, a hope. And it concludes that our hope goes behind the curtain which separates God and his people. This is picturing the curtain in the tabernacle that separated the Holy of Holies from the next section of the temple. 
the place in which God resided and in which no common man was to enter. Our hope goes beyond that curtain into the presence of God. Why? Because Jesus has went there before us. He is seated at the right hand of God on high. And so we have this objective reality that Jesus secures the blessings and the promises for us eternally. That gives us the hope that can be immovable, that can be unwavering, not because of itself, but because of the one in whom it is placed. And the eternal nature of that priesthood mentioned here, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, the eternal nature of that is the further guarantee that this is not a temporary thing, but the one who trusts in him will not be put to shame, but as the scripture says, has eternal life. That is what prepares us then to be patient in waiting, unwavering in faith. That while we expect to see manifestations of progress in the gospel as it goes to the nations, as people are converted, as people are brought under the lordship of Christ, we do not expect to see the fulfillment of all things in this life, but we wait for the world to come. But it is coming because Jesus guaranteed it. And So let that be assurance for you this morning. Let that encourage you. And let that be one of the ordinary things that you meditate on day in and day out, to cling to Christ in that hope and to be encouraged as you walk with him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful hope that you have given us. We thank you um, that we, the weak, though failing, though so prone to wonder, have been given an eternal love decreed by you from before time began. Lord, we cannot truly comprehend it, but we are oh so grateful for it. Increase in us, Lord, a love for you, Lord, a love for your word, and a passion and a desire to see it taught faithfully, Lord, to see it witnessed to those who do not know it. And I pray, Lord, give us a resolve to be patient, cling to your ordinary provision that you have given to us, and to trust your good purposes and to know that we stand with a long line of faithful people whom you have called out of the world and granted eternal life with. Lord, we look forward to that day when Jesus comes. But for now, Lord, we love you. We praise you. Give us what we need or to glorify your name and to pursue the coming of your kingdom on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.